Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the New Lines podcast. Uh, my name is Kareem Shaheen, and uh, I'm going to be your host for today. I'm sitting in for Faisal Yafei, uh, who is uh, usually the able uh, host uh, on, on this show. Uh, today, we're here to talk about justice in the Middle East, uh, its prospects, um, you know, the possibility of achieving accountability, um, you know, across the region, uh, particularly given uh, the recent spate of conflicts. Uh, it's an expansive topic, uh, but uh, we're joined uh, today uh, by David Kay, uh, a uh, man I, I greatly admire uh, and, uh, and, and who I'm looking forward to interviewing today. Uh, David teaches law at the University of California at Irvine and served for six years between 2014 and 2020 uh, as the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Opinion and Expression. Uh, welcome, David. Thanks, Karim. It's really great to be here. Thanks for those kind words. Well, uh, we're really excited to have you here. Um, I know it's a it's a big topic, and and uh, I think I'm going to start with uh, with an expansive question. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. before we sort of drill down to some specifics. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask you first. You know, uh, I used to be a correspondent in the Middle East, and uh, one of the things that always struck me about covering the region's various conflicts has been the futility of it all. You know, uh, your report on, uh, you know, atrocities, on, on crimes that happen. Um, and, you know, while you're reporting, you have this thing nagging at the back of your mind uh, that nobody's ever going to be held accountable for for these crimes and for these atrocities that are being reported on. And, and uh, you know, particularly on Syria, it's one of the most well-documented conflicts um, in, in recent history. Uh, so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the importance of accountability and justice in the context of the region, uh, first of all, and, um, and and why it's important uh, if we're looking to societies recovering from the conflicts that uh, have torn at it in recent years. Yeah, that is such a great question, and it is expansive. And I guess I would start by saying that, like, in this respect, the Middle East isn't all that different from other regions of conflict. I mean, if you think about, you know, you could think about Sudan and Darfur, you could think about Myanmar today, you could think about countless conflicts, the DRC, um, where, you know, conflicts have led to outcries uh, with respect to war crimes and crimes against humanity and genocide and to, like outstanding reporting that, and even international organizations collecting hard evidence of crime, and yet very, very few people are held accountable for these crimes. And that's, you know, it, it's something that the International Criminal Court and, and the Rome Statute, when it was established in the 1990s, was was designed to fight against. You know, on the on the idea that holding people accountable and not just holding people accountable, but creating a, a kind of set of data and an archive of criminality, an archive of injustice, that that would serve to both maybe deter future crime, but even more importantly, to you know set up a, a, a kind of foundation for societies to move forward on the basis of truth about their past. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the last 25 years or so, you know, in what I think many people thought would be an era of accountability, like a renewed Nuremberg era in a way, is that, you know, many of those hopes and and dreams 
simply are not are not reflected in the reality. There are a lot of reasons for that, um, but but it's I think a real uh, you know it's a it's a, a shame. Um, it is a disappointment for many people in the field, uh, and for many people in countries that have been beset by by criminality and the you know failure of accountability. And you know in the Middle East we see this you know in spades as they might say right. We see this in in sort of the the continued violence and oppression and repression in you know Syria as you mentioned or the Lebanon tribunal after you know the you know 20 years since the assassination of Rafi Kariri or, or or the failure of justice in Libya you know all of these places i think highlight the same fundamental fact that we see around the world and it's it is depressing and you know hopefully we could find ways around it Right. This idea of an end to impunity has, um, uh, you know, was was a key aspect of the of the Lebanon tribunal as well. And I'm and I'm going to ask you about that in a in a second. Um, but you know, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know the fact that there has there have been quite a few internecine conflicts in in the region. Uh, you know, th- these sorts of civil wars. Uh, yeah. You mentioned a few of them. Uh, you know, in Syria and Libya, uh, but also in Yemen. Um, uh, you know, in Lebanon, of yes. course. Uh, and, and I wonder if you could talk about the importance of justice and accountability for the prospects of people living together once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in Syria in particular, there's been, uh, you know, people have tracked for a long time, uh, you know, different aspects of the conflict that include, you know, displacing people on purpose, um, a form of, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing, for for lack of a better word, uh, from some parts of the country. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about whether it's possible, really, for people to kind of go back to living together and, and trusting their neighbors again, uh, you know, without some sort of mechanism that that holds people to account for the crimes of, of these conflicts? Yeah, I, you know, it's a real, it's a real difficult question in, in the sense that, you know, every environment is different, of course. Um, and, you know, accountability. So I guess I would say accountability should be a value on its own. Uh, kind of independent of other values, such as reconciliation and coexistence. And I, I, I say that knowing that, you know, we have examples in places where accountability mechanisms, in some respects, kind of make it harder for communities to move forward, or they become so politicized that they undermine certain efforts at um, at reconciliation, and you know a, a good example of that is the situation in Bosnia today. Which, you know, I want to emphasize: I'm not blaming the accountability mechanisms, either the national ones or the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, for the problems of reconciliation. It's just that, you know, these tools become, you know, in a sense, you know. Kind of political footballs. Um, I know not everybody in the audience will be American, but I'll use that kind of <laughs> that, that kind of illusion. You know, but they do become uh, tools for political actors to use in their own, you know, domestic settings, which can be really problematic. I mean, I, I take the view that accountability is essential to creating a kind of foundation of of truth, and that from that. You know, as long as other social mechanisms are in place, which could be truth and reconciliation uh, mechanisms, a, a vibrant civil society, a um, 
you know, a, an independent judiciary, a, a, you know, a space for democratic debate. Like if those things are all taking place, then accountability can be one part of the tool of bringing societies, rebuilding societies, bringing them back together. But if we put all our eggs in the basket of accountability, you know, I, I, I think that we, um, we sort of put too much on, you know, too much weight on the shoulders of that process. There, there has to be society-wide efforts. Um, not, it can't, we can't just rely on, you know, a war crimes tribunal, whether it's international or domestic. That's that's a really interesting point. I, I mean, you know, these international tribunals, at least, are are very ponderous, right? It takes them a very long time to actually prosecute um, any of these crimes, and uh, um, and and so it does, in a sense, I suppose, uh, make societies relive moments of of their history that they'd rather forget. No. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, that that's that's part of that's that's got to be part of the process. I mean. You want to avoid as much as you can re-traumatizing individuals, victims, witnesses, and in some larger scale, re-traumatizing a society. It, I, I, you know, I find this complex, you know, because it is important to go through that process. It's just that the process has to be combined with broader approaches. And, you know, I think th there's been one debate. And you see this across across the range of accountability initiatives between you know those who believe that international justice that is you know the international criminal court or different international mechanisms sponsored by or created by the united nations that that those are less effective than domestic mechanisms for accountability the problem is that you know, domestic mechanisms often don't even get set up in the first place. And so, you know, we get into this place where people are like, there needs to be accountability. Of course, it, the ideal is for that to be done at the local levels, but for whatever reason, we can't get to that. And so we rely on these, on these international mechanisms to do that. And as you said, I mean, they're ponderous, they take tons of time to set up, they are very expensive, and, you know, they don't always you know, filter down to the you know, kind of the social rebuilding that we're hoping to to see in these places. It's um, uh, you know, I mean, in in the absence of of this sort of mechanism, uh, I mean, what, what do you think of as as the alternative? I mean, you know, we have a few models, I suppose, in in the region where um, you know we just forget that anything happened, um, yeah. you know, or or you introduce something like the amnesty that that took place at the end of the of the Lebanese civil war, um, and I, I wonder what you think are the potential alternative models. You know, one of the things that always strikes me in in interviewing you know people who been victims of, of crimes in, in the region is how many of them simply rely on God kind of making up for mm -hmm. what what they endured, you know, and hoping that, that the individual who perpetrated the crimes, uh, you know, will be punished in, in the afterlife. Um, yeah. But but there, there's got to be an, an alternative here, right? I mean, what, what do you see as the as the kind of model that, that is most likely to to work? And, and obviously, most conflicts are, are different. And, and there are all these political considerations that, that go into them and, and external backers and so on. Um, but, but, you know, what do you see as the model working in a conflict like Syria, you know, where, where there's there's an enormous amount of evidence that's been amassed? I mean, is it enough that, yeah. that we've amassed the evidence that we know that it happened? Or, or does something need to happen? Yeah, I, 
I mean, you're asking such great, incisive questions here. I, I, um, so first, just get, relating to your last point, I think the very fact of collecting evidence, collecting information, of you know, and, and you know whether that's collecting information by things like the you know what the the UN General Assembly set up this international mechanism for accountability for Syria and the kind of work that the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN does to, in, with its commission of inquiry, to you know, uh, kind of bring to light all of the, the crime, you know, by, uh, you know, by the government, by the regime, by other actors, like that's really important. And that's, that's historically valuable um, to the extent that it, it can be seen by people in Syria eventually. It is a tool for people to be recognized because, you know, one of the, and you know this from your reporting, you know, one of the, the real traumas that people go through is that they experience this, you know, terrible criminality and yet nobody recognizes it. And that in itself is its own form of traumatization. And so, you know, the, the collection itself is really valuable and it's really important for the long-term understanding and, and, and one hopes for some future stage when there's a peace process, a genuine peace process, a, you know, a move towards reconciliation, which includes a recognition of what happened during war. And, and I think that's, you know, that kind of data collection is really important. I mean, the models, there, there are, you know, since the 1990s, there have been developed a number of models for how to do this. I mean, perhaps the most, I don't know if I'd say the most successful, but the certainly the, the greatest set of um, data we have is around the, the ICTY, the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal, which there's tons of criticism about it. Uh, and it's, and, and you know, it would take several podcasts to go through with that, with those criticisms involved, but they created a set of, you know, of convictions of individuals, they, you know, really highlighted the importance of accountability. They created a, a kind of archive of war crimes and crimes against humanity that I think, you know, are, are sort of the standards for people in the region to understand what happened in the past. And hopefully it's something they can build away from. I mean, they haven't been successful at that yet, but hopefully they can. That is one model. It's an international model, though, and it it doesn't involve, you know, sort of the integration of local actors and also local rebuilding of democratic or, you know, judicial institutions that you have in other models. So there was a model in, you know, in the wake of the war, uh, in the civil war in Sierra Leone, which involved integrating local and national judges and prosecutors and others. And, you know, whatever one thinks about the success of that effort, you know, it actually helped bring a kind of, um, you know, internal, maybe I'd say internalization of not just the conflict, but of the justice and accountability approach that, you know, also kind of gave some initiative to rebuilding uh, systems for justice across the board uh, in in Sierra Leone and, and in Liberia, in fact. So, you know, there are mechanisms out there. There are models. 
it's hard to see them taking root in the Middle East right now. And we can talk about why that might be. And you probably have better ideas for that than I do. But it's um, but there are models out there. Well, let's talk about a specific model that that, um, that the international community tried to apply uh, to the Middle East through through the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Um, yeah. So, for those for those who don't know, the the STL um, was established in I believe two thousand nine, and um, uh, before that, there was a, a prolonged investigation into the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq al Hariri. Uh, and the tribunal was set up uh, by the international community with the aim of prosecuting uh, those who carried out the assassination and other uh, related political assassinations in Lebanon. Uh, the court ended up uh, indicting uh, five members of Hezbollah and uh, convicting one of them. Um, and uh, before uh, any other trials uh, in the connected cases were to take place, uh, the tribunal um, abruptly had to close down um, or largely close down due to uh, its its funders, uh, which are members of the international community and the Lebanese government, uh, ending their um, uh, their funding or drastically cutting it back. And, and it appears that the tribunal is going to shut down completely sometime next year once it's done cataloging all the evidence. Um, so. David, I wanted first to ask you for your, you know, just frank assessment of, of the tribunal and its work um, and, um, you know, and the attempt to really apply the international model um, uh, to, to Lebanon. It's, it's obviously a, a unique court in many ways. It's, uh, it's an international court, but, uh, but it employed a lot of Lebanese staff, including Lebanese judges, relied on Lebanese criminal code. Uh, it was one of the, I think, the only tribunal that was prosecuting a crime of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, internationally, um, but you know, it, it took. I mean, it's been um, uh, it's been fifteen, sixteen years since Rafiq al Hariri was assassinated. The countries moved on, um, and uh, and the people who were on trial were tried in absentia, and, and they were never held to account. And Hezbollah has refused to cooperate with the court and hand them over. Uh, so, I wonder if you could give us a frank assessment yeah. of, of what you think about the tribunal, and then we can drill down to specifics. Yeah, I you know I I would say, and that was a great overview. I, you know. There, there was a lot riding on the success of the STL in its early days, and I think you know its its setup was was creative. I mean, it was inventive, and it and there was I think a lot of hope that because, as you say, it involved Lebanese law, Lebanese you know personnel, um, you know, it, it kind of included this idea of ensuring that that the accountability process for the the Hariri assassination would be a joint effort of the international community and the national Lebanese community and that I mean I think that's a that's something that you know we shouldn't just throw away and I think that you know one hope is that you know the I think it was what August of 2020, when the the first and only conviction you know came out, when the STL came down with that that opinion uh, or that conviction, that that can be, as we're talking about in other contexts, you know, that can be a basis for you know moving forward in a very complex political environment. I think the the problem is that you know at the end of the day, the STL was not really seen as 
a like an indigenous justice mechanism. I mean, it was it was you know much of the work apart from the investigatory stuff, you know, was taking place in the Netherlands. So there was this kind of distance. Um, you know, from the very beginning, the STL was was kind of fraught and divisive in in Lebanese politics and society, which I think everybody understood would be the case. But it was uh, it was a pretty intense kind of uh, divisiveness. And you know, at the w- when you when you end up with a, a conviction that you know also involved in in absentia conviction, that is, you know, these the, the individual convicted and the others who were prosecuted, you know, were never actually in the dock physically. They were never taken by the STL. You know, those are real problems. And um, and I think we have to think about moving forward, whether that kind of model, you know, with the international side so dominant uh, and the divisiveness so uh, kind of uh, disruptive, you know whether that's something that's that's a positive. I mean, so like my frank assessment is there was a lot of hope that um, ultimately was unmet. I don't think it's the the fault of the STL staff, um, but it's in part a fault of the international community and in failing to, you know, to kind of you know continue its initiation of that process with greater support, which you know fizzled out in the end. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about about the the role of the international community here, because I mean, obviously, the 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 role is not simply in terms of uh, funding, but but they also have a role to play in terms of pressuring, uh, you know, countries and and the leadership in those countries, uh, you know, towards cooperating with 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 it, with justice mechanisms, whether they're international or not, right? So, um, yeah. in the example of Yugoslavia, uh, you know, Serbia was compelled to hand over uh, war criminals, um, you know, as a consequence of, uh, you know, wanting to join the EU, and and uh, mm-hmm. and, and that was obviously a really important, um, you know, motivator to get them to cooperate with the court. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether it's even really possible. Uh, to to have these sorts of international justice mechanisms, um, or even local justice mechanisms, um, you know, at, at a moment when multilateralism really does seem to be in, in retreat across uh, across the world, there's, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe the, the the tide of far right nationalism has kind of um, you know retreated a little bit, but um, the the pandemic has has really exposed all of these trends of of countries kind of. Saying you know me first, right? Uh, yeah. America wants to do booster shots of the vaccine before the vaccine is available, um, you know, for first and second doses in, in many parts of the world. Um, so th- there's there's a very strong sense of you know each country looking out for itself, uh, multilateralism kind of being a a less dominant force than it was in in the in the early and mid two thousands. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about whether, you know, what role the international community has in, in trying to enforce, um, uh, you know, international justice mechanisms and local justice mechanisms and, and whether that's, uh, you know, that sort of political pressure is, is it's possible to bring it to bear at all, um, you know, in the current environment we have. Yeah. I mean, as you were as you were talking about the sort of me first, I was also thinking about how look how fraught even getting some accountability for January 6th in the United States has been. Right. I mean, we. It's not as if I think it's important for us to to realize that when we talk about uh, accountability, you know, whether it's war crimes or or other kinds of you know forms of of, of accountability, um, 
you know, it's it's not like democratic societies are so good at it themselves. I mean, in fact, we, we have a like a, a kind of global deficit of accountability. Um, so anyway, just to <laughs> to highlight that that problem, I mean, I I think, the, I mean, the international community has an absolutely important role in supporting these kinds of mechanisms. I mean, sometimes, I mean, you could imagine, a, you know, a, a country that comes out of war and develops its own model. Um, I mean, the, people often point to the South African model of truth and reconciliation, where, you know, there was a, a kind of a broad understanding, uh, not necessarily a consensus, but an understanding among key political actors that in order to move forward and to move away from apartheid into a democratic era, there were certain kinds of steps of accountability and recognition that had to take place in order to move forward into that new space. And, you know, most, you know, frankly, most societies are just not at that place that they can do that on their own. And so, you know, I think the the example again of the Yugoslavia tribunal, which which I you know I, I'm sorry that I keep referring back to it, but but I think it there's just so many lessons from that process. You know, one thing that that was a part of the the ICTY, the Yugoslavia tribunal, was that there was a kind of you know because it was established by the UN Security Council, there was a requirement on states to uh, you know, to support it um, to, and to follow its orders. And so, you know, if the ICTY uh, indicted somebody, there was an obligation on the country that actually held that person to deliver that person or to ensure that that person is transferred to The Hague, where the ICTY was conducting its work. And um, you know, there were several times where the Security Council kind of engaged in that process. And, and as you mentioned, you know, there, there, there was interest in the region, you know, in the, in the Balkans um, to being a greater part of, of Europe. So they had that kind of motivation as well to be, you know, uh, you know kind of supporting or, or cooperating with the ICTY. We don't see that same kind of thing in the Middle East right now. Right, like we we don't see, we don't see the international community, which I'm. You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes for international community, right? But we don't see governments putting pressure on specific states in order to either create or support a mechanism for justice. That it it hardly exists. I mean, you have a few countries that support that kind of effort, but very little in terms of, you know, like hard action to bring bring those countries into line. And, you know, there's there, there are many things that they could do that they don't do. Um, there are missed opportunities. I mean, I think of the immediate aftermath of, um, you know, of the, the war in Libya, you know, going back 10 years or so, nine or 10 years, you know, is, is a good example of missed opportunities for accountability and justice in the context of rebuilding a society. I, it's not to say it would be easy. You know, I don't want to be kind of, uh, you know, naive about what was required to rebuild Libya. But, you know, we, there were just a lot of missed opportunities and the, the you know, governments that have the power to, to do things, whether through financial or logistic or other kinds of support, 
you know, they, they often just fail to step up and do what's necessary. You know, I wonder if you could, if you could talk a bit about what possible solutions are there, you know, to this, to this kind of impasse, right? I mean, uh, it's, it was interesting, for example, to, to, um, to look at the example of the ICC and, and, you know, the ICC, the International Criminal Court uh, has, you know, has faced accusations of kind of targeting African countries, uh, for example, uh, of being politicized, um, you know, Hezbollah has accused the, the Lebanon Tribunal of being politicized and, and being kind of because it's funded by the U.S. and, and, uh, and that, it, you know, they're relying on, on Israeli intelligence and all these conspiracy theories mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, emerged as a consequence of this. Um, but it is a consequence of, of these courts being, you know, political creations. I mean, it's it's impossible for you to bring a case to the uh, to the ICC, and except in in, uh, in certain circumstances, um, mm -hmm. you know, if it's vetoed by the UN Security Council, um, you know, or if the country itself decides that it wants to be part of the ICC, and uh, and obviously countries like you know the U.S., Russia, China, Great Britain, France, uh, they can avoid accountability indefinitely for uh, you know crimes that they committed anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And so there is a point to the idea that, that there is a double standard in terms of international justice. Um, so, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what the potential path forward, uh, you know, looks like for, uh, you know, justice institutions for, for maybe actions by the international community that could, you know, rebuild trust in, in these institutions um, or, you know, uh, on the alternative punitive actions if countries don't follow through on, um, you know, bringing justice and accountability to uh, crimes that take place on, on their own territories, uh, like in Syria, yeah. like in Iraq, and on, um, you know, thinking in particular of, of the, the, the Beirut explosion and the fact that, uh, you know, there's been blatant interference in, um, uh, you know, such a horrendous crime that, that, that uh, you know, was, was quite enormous in scale, uh, maybe not a war crime, yeah. but, but how, how do you sort of, right. uh, you know, go forward from there? Yeah, you know, so there's different. There's Sorry different... for the expensive questions, but no, no, no. <laughs> it's an it, opportunity I mean, to are... ask you, uh, you know, for your expertise. No, these are great. They're giving me ideas for like a, a you know student dissertations and uh, law review articles. I no, they're they're really important questions. So I would I would say, um, okay, first, um, you know, I think one thing that that would be enormously helpful. In, like, in the overall accountability project, if we could put it that way, is simply to get a, a successful case out of the International Criminal Court. And by successful, I mean a case that kind of meets you know, all of the requirements of, um, you know, of transparency, of uh, you know, dealing with impunity, of highlighting for a political community the the nature of criminality bringing somebody through a process whether they're convicted or not isn't really the key point but actually having a successful case go through the system and then a successful case a set of cases like you know a successful situation so the way the ICC defines you know a uh, like a set of cases is a situation so for example the situation in Darfur, right? So that situation, like if we could have imagined a, you know, a process that was accessible to people and they saw that th there was, you know, a focused attention to a particular set of crimes and people were held accountable, I think that would go a long way to reviving a sense that 
international courts, right? That international mechanisms can be really valuable, you know, in terms of both, bring, hold, you know, at the international level, saying to all states that this kind of criminality is considered um, anathema to behavior, not just at national levels, but international levels, and that's important, but also, you know, could could kind of serve as a signal to national communities, to national jurisdictions around the world that, you know, maybe an international mechanism can be an appropriate way for us to pursue justice um, in a way that that actually helps us move towards, you know, a, a phase of reconciliation. And so we're not there. We haven't really had that kind of case. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, you can't just rely on international courts or international mechanisms or even domestic justice mechanisms alone to do that work. There needs to be broader support for, you know, for civil society and, and for other tools as well. But that would be a start. I mean, I think there's something else, you know, I, I alluded to a kind of missed opportunity uh, on Libya. I, you know, it, you know, it's very easy to look back and say, oh, they should have done this or that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I have the opportunity to do that. So, you know, I think that at the time, you know, you might remember that the ICC, the pro chief prosecutor, indicted several Libyans, like, you know, early in uh, the civil war, it was like, you know, maybe April of, of um, 20, 2011 or 12, I, I forget exactly what when it was. But at that moment, instead of making that process, this kind of imposed process of international courts saying, we're going to hold senior Libyan officials accountable for you know specific crimes against civilians, um, they could have you know basically said, "Look, we're going to be a little more nimble here. We are going to set ourselves up in Tripoli. Uh, we are going to you know much as the STL ended up doing, we are um, and doing before. Um, we are going to involve local expertise. We're going to involve." Libyan prosecutors, Libyan judges, and others. And we're going to do it in a way that is localized and allows people to see justice being done and also helps rebuild institutions that have been decimated over decades of Qaddafi's rule. But, you know, that seemed to, to be what? Too expensive, too creative, too risky in terms of security, and, and they didn't go that route. And I think that, you know, that's unfortunate, but it also highlights a kind of maybe thin support or commitment to international justice generally. It's a good rhetorical line, but there's just there's often very little creative follow through and making things happen. Right. Well, let's let's talk about the counterfactual for a second, and, and you know, uh, let's take Syria as as an example. Um, you know. It, it does appear that there is no immediate prospect for uh, for justice or uh, for accountability for the crimes that have happened, at least you know outside of the examples of, of universal jurisdiction and, and uh, trials right. uh, that have been taking place in, in places like Germany and so on. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, in ten years, what does the society look like if you know none of the questions that that arose, that arose or uh, the crimes that were committed during the war are, are addressed or, or people are held to account for it 
Um, what does society yeah. look like? Uh, you know, what do what do interactions between uh, you know different factions, different sects, different uh, religions? What, what do they look like in, in 10 years from now? And, and at the same time, you know, if you're a, a civil society organization or, you know, a peace building organization or, um, you know, an activist dedicated really to, to trying to help Syrians live together again uh, after the war, what, what should you be doing um, for the over the next 10 years uh, to try and achieve that goal? Yeah, I mean, look, one, I, I could talk in the abstract about you know, where one would hope or where I would hope Syrian society would be, you know, obviously, you know, your, your question embeds within it the complexity because there's so many different actors and factions that are, that cut across ethnic and religious lines. And, you know, that, the, the kind of process of accountability that also involves processes of reconciliation is going to have to be you know, uh, kind of across the spectrum of actors in in Syria, and it's extremely unlikely that it can take place in an environment where, uh, you know, Assad remains in power, right? Because ultimately, um, you know, he bears so much responsibility for so much of the crime of the last 10 years. And so, you know, if we're looking ahead 10 years, I mean, I do think, and there are there are Syrians who are involved in these processes, like the Syria Justice and Accountability um, Commission, or or other um, you know Syrian actors who've been involved with the Commission of Inquiry and and other processes. I think the you know the process of collecting information about crime is really important, so that. You know, you you gave the timeline of ten years. Whenever we end up at that point, where there can be some, you know, process of accountability, some process to end impunity, that we have the information, and then we have the expertise to sort through that information, to present it to the public, to um, to basically, you know, allow people to recognize in an unthreatening way both the trauma that they suffered, but also the trauma that they caused, like that kind of, uh, of, of sort of setting up that, that potential is really important over the next 10 years or whatever that time frame looks like. And I would say, you know, that would be one thing that, you know, that Syrian activists, and I don't want to speak as if they're not doing it. I mean, there, there are a lot, a lot of Syrian activists who, who really know this space and are doing this work already. But I think that's an important part of it. You know, I do think it's also, um, you know, really important to be specific. So, you know, a lot of activists have simply been disappeared, uh, you know, since 2011. You know, they, they were active, you know, lawyers, journalists, others who have simply disappeared from, you know, you know, from their families, from the communities that they lived in, that they worked in. And, you know, there needs to be a kind of, you know, process for accounting for those disappearances. And that's, that's actually there, you know, there was a process in Bosnia that did some of this work. And it was, you know, very, very painful for people. But because it was specific, and because it enabled people to learn what had happened to, you know, their loved ones or people respected in their communities, 
that also kind of created some space for kind of intergroup understanding of the pain that they each were feeling. And so I think that, you know, to the extent that we can be more specific, um, that's, you know, that's going to be, I think, valuable to, to reconciliation or just rebuilding processes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's I think one of the few things that, that sustains a lot of journalists uh, reporting on the region, um, you know, is, is I think the catharsis that, that uh, you know, appears to take place when people tell you their stories, you know, it's, it's like there's, there's a desire to be heard, even if nothing will come out of it. And, and obviously, that shouldn't be the, the end goal, right? Uh, but, but, it, but at least there's that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I was thinking about, um, because I was you know, talking about disappearances, um, I was thinking about a lawyer who, who I knew not, not very well, Razan Zaituna. I don't know if you knew Razan in, in any of your work. But, I mean, not, not personally, but, uh, but, but we know of her, of course. But, but somebody like Razan, you know, she was doing incredibly brave work before and after the, the uprising uh, and the war began. And she was kidnapped in you know, maybe 2000, end of 2012 or 2013. And, you know, there's, there's no information about her. And I, I think that, you know, people, people would be really, people would benefit from knowing what she did, the kind of work she did to build a democratic Syria. Um, and, and part of the story of her disappearance can also tell a kind of story of initial hope of building rule of law in the country that was, you know, squashed by, by Assad and and by other actors in Syria. And um, yeah, that's I think telling those stories could be really valuable in the future. Right. And and uh, uh, for those for those listeners who don't know, uh, she was part of the the famous Duma Four, and there were four activists who were um, uh, taken uh, hostage and then disappeared by uh, the group which controlled uh, Eastern Ghouta at the time, Jaish uh, al-Islam or, or the Army of Islam, and uh, uh, nobody quite knows what what happened to them um, after that. And, and it's uh, it's important to emphasize that that accountability is not just for those in power, even though their crimes might be more systematic um, than than other non-state actors, but uh, but it's uh, it's important to uh, maintain justice um, and, and and try and achieve justice and accountability across the board, and and uh, not just against uh, one particular faction. Um, yeah, that's uh, David, right. Yeah. David, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about um, uh, you know the other fascinating aspect of your work, which we uh, you know barely got to. Uh, but you know your work as uh, as the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Opinion and Expression, um, you know, saw you uh, defending uh, journalists and and uh, and free speech activists and and uh, and this uh, these causes uh, around the world, and um, uh, and that's that's how I personally uh, became more more familiar with your work. And, and I was wondering if you could talk about. Um, you know a little bit about the the, uh, the the crisis that was uncovered by recent reporting uh, around mm. the Pegasus uh, spying software, uh, which uh, uh, you know it was found that many governments uh, around the world, but but in the region too, have been using it to spy on on activists and journalists and uh, uh, and and you know people who uh, would eventually become prisoners of conscience uh, in those countries. Um, I'm wondering if you could you know give us a, a brief overview of. You know how the of where the situation stands there now, uh, mm-hmm. and and how how you feel about uh, you know these these new forms of, of digital surveillance that um, uh, you know have gone beyond what we've 
traditionally been used to uh, by various Arab regimes and, and Middle Eastern governments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the situation uh, for digital repression is is just out of control. I mean, there's no other way to to put it. Really, you know, governments have obtained access, and you know, by governments, you know, specifically, it's it's like every government in the region. It seems like, but you know, there have been repeated stories about about Saudi, UAE, Bahrain, uh, Egyptian. Uh, others, you know, using these these tools, which you know uh, have been developed, uh, you know, and often you know sold by Israel's NSO group, but also by others. I mean, they're they're not alone. There there are other, I mean, countless really actors in the global spyware market that are selling to to governments that that are using these tools in order to undermine a free press to undermine public debate. Uh, and, you know, I, th I think that, you know, we're, we're sort of at a moment right now where people around the world recognize the problem of a, a lawless spyware industry. And we need to figure out what are the best ways, you know, first to control the export of these, these products, which, you know, they're difficult to control because we're we're talking about software uh, as opposed to the kind of hardware that we think of as dual use or military technologies. So that you know that poses a problem. But we also have to think about government responsibility. You know whether you know it's the Israeli government's licensing of exports of these tools to to governments that are clearly using them for bad purposes. You know not for the the kind of Counterterrorism uh, or anti-crime purposes that NSO, uh, you know, touts, but they're really using them for for illicit purposes. I mean, I would, I would connect this also to our, you know, our previous discussion. You know, the thing about accountability, and particularly the thing about, you know, collecting information about crimes committed by by governments and by non-state actors whether we're talking about Syria or Yemen or Lebanon or you know you name the country or Egypt um, you know that that process is about exposing the truth of behavior of you know behavior of people who have power whether it's governmental or non-governmental and that is very much like of the same DNA uh, of you know, involved in the use of these kinds of tools like Pegasus in order to, you know, intimidate journalists or lawyers or activists from speaking out. I mean, it's, at the end of the day, they are all about a process of limiting the information that the public has to understand what's happening in their societies and to make choices about what kind of society they want to live in. And, you know, I, I think if we think of them as, you know, really independent, uh, kind of processes or independent things taking place in society. I think we're missing sort of the, the foundational point that governments fear information, whether that's information about war crimes or it's information about corruption or it's information about how they spend money um, or how they make decisions or how they retain power. And, um, and we, we sort of need to to sort of take take a step back and think about like is that the kind of world that we want to live in and if not how do we 
how do we address it? And you know, it's, it just comes up in different aspects, but but I think they're all very much connected in one way or another. You know, we we, we often talked about um, how the walls have ears in in, in the region. You know, and, and you would um, you would avoid sort of talking about politics to um, you know anyone who you didn't trust, and mm. and even people within within your own family. Uh, you know, uh, Syrian friends who uh, even when they you know mentioned the name Hafez al-Assad or Bashar al-Assad, uh, even if you know they're uh, they're far away in in, in a country in in Europe or in North America, uh, you know they they still kind of fear saying the name out loud, uh, you know, mm. as though someone's always listening. Um, and the yeah. fascinating thing about Pegasus for me has been the fact that they are always listening and, and now they they know a lot more about you than um, th than was possible before. And, and I was wondering if you yeah. could, you know, maybe allude to what they do actually know about you when, yeah. when they manage to infect your computer with that sort of software or your phone yeah. with that sort of software. I mean, think about what's on your phone, right? I mean, yeah, everybody, um, yeah, I mean, you know better than I do. I mean, everybody in the Middle East is, you know, at one level or another connected, right? I mean, they're connected. I, I mean, like connected to the internet, online connected. They're getting their information, you know, through their mobile phone as much as they're getting it from anywhere else. They're getting it through their WhatsApp groups, through, you know, Instagram, through Signal or whatever it might be. And you know, when a government gets gets access to your phone, it's not like in the past where maybe a government got access to a, you know, your telephone conversation, which is, you know, a snapshot of your conversation over the course of the day. Or, you know, they get access to maybe the content of your mail or the content of your, you know, your safe, if you had a safe. Like all of those things were pretty specific and discrete interferences with a person's privacy. Then you think about what Pegasus, among other products out there, allows. You know, it gives a government basically full access to all of your contacts, to all of the information that might be on your phone. If it's a kind of keystroke, um, you know, uh, surveillance, it's getting information as to your communications in real time. And that, I think, is a qualitative difference in surveillance from the past era of surveillance that you know you might have seen in you know the german film the lives of others you know where there's somebody listening but it's discreet this is um this is really pretty pervasive and all-encompassing it's comprehensive and that i i find that you know dystopic in all sorts of ways it's extremely frightening if you think about the possibility of having any zone of privacy for for expression, for communication, for gathering of information, for browsing the internet, for downloading details of things that you're interested in, and it goes beyond politics, right? It goes to, you know, sexual orientation, um, exploration of your heritage, all of those things. The government is getting like a government that has the ability to get either you know, direct access to your internet traffic or to your device is getting this massive amount of information so that they know you, they know you as well as you know yourself in a way. And that's, I think that's frightening. And you know, you know, coming close to you know, totalitarian as opposed to merely authoritarian. And on that terrifying note. Uh... <laughs> Can we end on something more hopeful? I don't know. <laughs> 
I mean, you know what I take, yeah. I, I do want to say on like a hopeful note, like my experience, particularly when I was a special rapporteur, my experience in working with activists, you know, you know, whether it was kind of specific activists in particular fields or digital rights activists and security professionals in the Middle East was like always inspiring and impressive. And I, you know, one of the things that I found in my work was there is this active, if repressed and underground civil society in the Middle East and North Africa that is like in so many ways, like indigenous and yet um, cosmopolitan and totally capable of creating and implementing a vision for democracy and coexistence in the region. I mean, people are out there thinking this stuff, doing the work, and you know, I just I hope that you know that others can support them in their work, whether it's their safety or their support them in their long-term vision, because it's their vision and it's a vision that totally deserves support and, and deserves to be known by people because you know, it is inspiring in so many ways. Now, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I do think that that's the, the positive uh, sort of takeaway from, from all of this is that, um, you know, the, the failure, if you want to call it that, of, of the uprisings between 2011 onwards um, has, has created this, uh, this understanding that, uh, you know, even if you were to be successful at removing the, the head, um, of uh, of the snake, so to speak, uh, you know, you still need the the foundational uh, civil society and and um, uh, and all these various grassroots mechanisms. If if you are to make any lasting sustainable change, and um, and you know, with Pegasus, uh, I think it's uh, it's led to to you know activists and, and people in general being more um, aware of of the limits of um, you know their ability to escape the authorities' attention um, become more digitally sophisticated um, uh, in, in in some ways you know even using those tools um, in um, uh, you know or different tools anyway uh, in, in ways to kind of try and evade uh, this sort of tracking uh, and, and they become much more technologically sophisticated um, yeah. uh, but the, the other side of it is that kind of grassroots uh, you know door-to-door work of, of trying to create civil society uh, institutions uh, free press um uh you know peace building initiatives and and that sort of thing um uh, i think it you're absolutely right that uh, it it's sort of the i think the the key silver lining of of the past few years is is we've realized how important that is yeah yeah i i completely agree and and you know and i think that you know if you think about things like new line media or the work of you know of global voices and, and, you know, others who are doing the kind of journalism that you're doing that is very, um, like, it, it, it's very immersive. That, that's, that's a part of it. And um, I, yeah, I think there's some hope to have in that. It's going to be, it's generational, obviously. It's not something that um, can change overnight or be built overnight. But, you know, you see the seeds for something that's better, for sure. Well, David Kaye, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, and for being with us here and for uh, being generous with your time and, and uh, during our long, expansive questions. Um, I, I really <laughs> appreciate you being here and thank you so much for, for, for agreeing to the interview. Yeah, thanks, Kareem. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>